From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Arnson. This is your news for Friday, July 21st. Agriculture accounts for 80% of all the water consumed in the Colorado River Basin. And about half of all that water is used to irrigate alfalfa fields. Today, we're talking to researchers who are studying how much water evaporates from an alfalfa field at Dugout Ranch down Indian Creek. They're trying to get a better sense of exactly how much water is used to grow this crop and how much of that water gets lost to the air before it can return to the groundwater supply. This device above us is measuring the evapotranspiration. This is Paul Inkenbrandt, a senior geologist with the Utah Geological Survey. He's showing me a device that looks kind of like a weather vane. The device measures how much water evaporates from the soil, and it also measures how much water evaporates from plants when they transpire and release water vapor from their leaves. It's measuring these little packets of wind that are moving very quickly. And in those packets of wind, they're carrying carbon dioxide and water vapor. The device measures all of the evapotranspiration that happens within about 200 meters. And so we could be measuring like more than a third of this Field. He and his partner, Catherine Ledig, have set up devices like this across the state. They want to get really localized information about how much water is used in a specific area. Eventually, they want to use that small-scale data to improve larger-scale studies that measure water use through satellite images. We have Landsat satellites. They've been imaging the Earth since the late 70s or early 80s, and they measure different frequencies of light. That includes like heat energy, and using these different wavelengths, you can get at the amount of heat being exchanged on the Earth's surface. And there's been some people much smarter than myself that have tuned in these equations to accurately estimate the amount of water that should be evapotranspiring based on that energy exchange. And so one of the things that the station measures is energy exchanges, right? You need energy to evaporate water. And so um, there's a certain amount of energy taken up when the plants transpire water and when water is evaporated. There's a certain amount of energy in the heat, in the air, right? And there's a certain amount of energy coming down from the sun above and actually being emitted from the ground below us. They can double check if their evapotranspiration measurements are correct by seeing if the incoming energy equals the outgoing energy from the sun, the temperature of the ground, and a bunch of other factors. If they can come up with a measurement system that uses satellite images instead of something more localized, like the device at Dugout Ranch, then the state would be able to estimate water use across much larger areas of land. That would be a huge breakthrough for the state, because right now, we don't know how much of that agricultural water goes back into the groundwater supply. We got into this because we were trying to do water budget analyses, right? We've been working in Castle Valley, we've been working in Spanish Valley, and one of the biggest unknowns in all of our budgets is evapotranspiration. And so if we can help develop technology that uses satellites to get at this in good evapotranspiration measurements across the state, then we can improve our water budget estimates for understanding how much groundwater is going into and out of the system. Okay, so you want to know because you want to know how much water is going back into the aquifer? Let's say we have a situation like Cedar City Valley, where the aquifer is actually being drained to some extent and the land is compacting, subsiding as a result. We need to know exactly how much water is going in and out of that system. And so in order to do that, we have to have good measurement. And that includes the amount of water being used by plants and being applied to the fields and being pumped out of the system and infiltrating into the system. When you say we don't have really good measurements for those numbers, you mean like once the water is pumped and 
and used, we don't know how much is evaporating. Or in, how- in many cases, we don't even know how much water is being pumped. There's a water right, and there's a certain value that's allowed to be pumped per year, and a farmer has a general idea of how much that is based on their sprinkler configuration or the amount of pressure in their system, but very rarely do you have an actual flow meter measuring that usage. So I'm still stuck on something you said earlier, which is that a lot of farmers don't know how much water they're pumping. But surely this seems like such a complicated way to sort of backtrack into that number. Like We're just measuring one component. In some places we have wells pumping water that don't have measurement on them. Now the farmers probably know better than anybody else, but even they don't have exact measurement on that system. That's just another area in the hydrologic system that doesn't have ideal measurement. Even something as simple as precipitation, you think it would be a very basic measurement, and we've been doing it in similar ways for a very long time, but there's, there's a whole slew of potential error associated with measuring precipitation. Wind blows rain away from these rain gauges and can cause errors upwards of 15%. In a follow-up email, Brandt explained that water use on farms isn't usually measured by the state unless that area is under a specific water management plan. Water use data is measured for drinking water, but we don't have great estimates for smaller farms and individual wells. The water user is responsible for telling the state how much water they use, and sometimes that number is double-checked by the Utah Division of Water Rights through a process called adjudication, but not always. You can find more information about the research at Dugout Ranch in today's show notes. Wildfires are getting bigger in the Mountain West, and climate change is affecting how landscapes recover. Scientists say it's a preview of what's to come in the Roaring Fork Valley. Hallie Zander of Aspen Public Radio looks at the recovery from one local fire and what managers are doing to prepare for the next big blaze. Five years ago, almost to the day, the Lake Christine fire ignited near Basalt, Colorado. And over the course of a few months, it burned over 12,000 acres. Adam McCurdy is the forest and climate director for the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies. And he often leads tours in a section of the burn scar on the backside of Basalt Mountain. So fire comes through, clears out all the grasses, all the shrubs, all the bushes, exposes that bare mineral soil. He's telling hikers in town for the Aspen Ideas Festival about how fire behaves and how the burn scar is recovering. And some sections are doing pretty well. Really prolific aspen growth. This one right here is probably already nine feet tall. But he remembers the urgency he felt when the fire sparked in 2018. He was hosting a dinner party with friends in Aspen. It was quickly becoming a really stressful situation as they were trying to figure out where this fire was in relation to to their homes. The fire got dangerously close to Elgebel, Willits, and historic downtown Basalt, burning a total of three structures and temporarily displacing hundreds. In the front over there? Yeah. In an interview at Rock Bottom Ranch, McCurdy says it burned at different severities in different places. In higher elevations, where there's lots of Engelmann spruce, subalpine fir, and lodgepole pine trees. When they burn, they burn hot. We did see some soil damage where we had soils that were mineralized, where the the heat actually broke down the molecules. But at mid-elevations, the aspen tree growth... It's just incredible. Probably thousands of shoots per acre. And at lower elevations, where the burn scar can be seen from town, there used to be a lot of pinyon junipers, but now... A lot of grassland. I think it's a reasonable expectation to think that shrubs are going to move in there. But I doubt that hillside is going to look like it did in any of our lifetimes. 
These different recovery timelines create a mosaic in the burn scar. And McCurdy says none of this is too out of the norm when it comes to typical rates of forest succession. Many of Colorado's forests have evolved with fire, and mature trees can survive some pretty harsh conditions. But seeds are a lot more fragile and may need cooler and wetter conditions to take root. So you might have forest on the landscape that's able to survive these new conditions that we've created through climate change. But once that forest is disturbed, whether it's from a fire or a logging event, the seeds might not be able to establish. McCurdy's referencing some findings from a 2019 study where scientists found warmer and drier conditions around the West are already making it harder for certain tree species to bounce back after fire, specifically at lower elevations. Tom Veblen, a retired professor from CU Boulder, co-authored the study and found that some of these areas are converting to grass and shrubland. And he says that can be dangerous to the overall health of ecosystems. From my perspective, our most important concern should be the carbon storage provided by large, long-lived trees. So when large swaths of these low-elevation forests disappear, the carbon storage they provided disappears too. That exacerbates the warming climate that impacted those forests in the first place. Now, Veblen hasn't studied the late Christine fire burn scar, but he says with warm and dry conditions getting more extreme, high-elevation places like the Roaring Fork Valley could see forests struggling to rebound after a fire, if they haven't already. It's just a matter of time. We are seeing a change in the extent of forest from low elevations to high elevations. And everybody who's been studying this across the Western U.S. is finding a similar pattern. Climate advocates and world leaders say weaning communities off fossil fuel dependency is necessary to prevent or at least elongate the time it takes to reach these kinds of thresholds. But there are some mitigation techniques that can limit the spread of future wildfires and the damage that they can do. Jim? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Jim Janang has been a firefighter for over 20 years and seen changes in fire behavior over time. These fires just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and fires are moving faster, hotter, that kind of thing. He works between public agencies to fight fires and mitigate fire risks in parts of western Colorado. And he does this in part with prescribed burns. These are fires set intentionally in the spring and fall when temperatures are low and winds are slow. They can eliminate brush and downed trees that could dry up later in the summer and fuel a higher intensity wildfire. And studies have found that fires that burn at a lower intensity result in higher rates of tree regeneration. So prescribed burns can actually spur new growth. And on top of that, Janung says firefighters were able to manage the late Christine fire's perimeter and its damage because of a prescribed burn conducted outside of basalt a few years before. The late Christine fire burned right up to the edge of that last prescribed fire we did, and it really changed the homogenous structure of the oak brush. We kept it out of Missouri Heights with that. He adds that it's one of the best mitigation tools he has. Because we can get a lot of area covered in a short amount of time. We can treat a lot of acres relatively safely. There's always a risk when putting fire on the ground, but many fire managers use prescribed burns to protect forested communities as climate change worsens. McCarty remembers the dry heat that characterized the summer of 2018 in Basalt when the late Christine fire ignited. 2018, by uh, some measures of drought, was the driest year in the Roaring Fork Valley in 120 years. And that's what we're seeing more and more across the state and across the West. He adds that a cooler summer would have changed how that fire burned and how far it reached. Climate change set the stage 
for that fire igniting and for that fire growing as quickly as it did. So while fire is a traditional part of Western Colorado's ecosystem and forest succession, climate change is disrupting that natural process. And as the Roaring Fork Valley gets hotter and drier, wildfire could, in an instant, change the landscape forever. I'm Hallie Zander. Boulder has swapped out mowers and herbicide for goats as a form of weed control at one local park. The herd of goats made an appearance in an event recently, and residents were able to stop by and meet the hoofed heroes that chew on noxious weeds to maintain the park's ecology. KGNU's Poor Jijonkit and Zach Thompson bring us this report. What's happening here today? There's yeah. the dog, there's, there's some, some goats. Dog, there's some goats, there's a bunch of people. Um, yeah, so we're at the annual Meet and Bleat. So this is an event that showcases our goats and our goat grazing program with Parks and Recreation. That's Erica Carlson, the ecology lead technician at Boulder Parks and Recreation. We use goats as noxious weed control at Harlow Platts Park, which is where we are. So we rotate them around the site throughout the growing season and they eat down the noxious weeds and reduce the energy store for the plants, also eat the seeds and neutralize those seeds through their stomach system. Carlson says the city only uses the goats at Harlow Platts Park and rotates them around the site for eight weeks. The main species of noxious weeds the goats control are Canada thistle, common teasel, hound's tongue, and crown vetch. Carlson adds the rains this year have made the weeds come in stronger and taller than in recent years. So this spot, as you can see, it's got a very steep slope, and that's hard for us to mechanically control the weeds. So if we didn't have the goats, we'd be up there with weed whackers. We're not allowed to spray herbicide at this site because it's an urban park with neighborhood nearby, kids playing around, and we don't want to be exposing folks to those herbicides. So this is kind of a almost a no-brainer for getting the goats here just because there's no real other effective method that we could use at this site. The city contracts with farmers to supply the goats. This year, that's Heather Spiker from Homestead Ranch. I think it's a great program. It's land reclamation as well as weed mitigation and also kind of is camaraderie to the community. I feel like we've heard a lot about how goats are helpful to the plants, but how is this program beneficial to the goats? I mean, it gives them the ability to have free feed and it also helps with the digestive system and keeps from the weeds growing back. So it's good for their gut and good for the environment. We also happened to run into Boulder City Council member Tara Weiner. I used to be on Parks and Rec board before I was on city council. So I have a big interest in what goats can do to help us with our environment. Residents had a chance to pet and feed the baby goats outside of the fence. What brings you here today? The goats. Goats? <laughs> yeah, we're here to play with the goats and meet them. Well, we wanted to see the goats with our daughter and uh, just experience the outside nature. Are you having a good time? Yes, we are. I love goats. They're my favorite animal beside horses. If there's such a thing as a national comedian, creative comedian, it's the goat because they're funny, they're boisterous, they're loving, they're comedian. I mean, they're all over the place. I've worked in two places with goats, so I totally love them. I'm so great to see them here. The goats will be at Harlow Platz Community Park for six more weeks, munching on any noxious weeds they can find. With Zach Thompson, I'm Porja Junkit for KGNU. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories from the Moab area. The Moab to Monument Valley Film Commission will find a new home at the Red Cliffs Foundation for a little over a year. I spoke with Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent about what it means for the county to hand over control of the commission to this new nonprofit. 
Let's start with the Film Commission. Big okay. story this week. Yeah, what happened? Yeah, uh, per a contract between the Red Cliffs Foundation and Grand County that was approved uh, Tuesday night by the Grand County Commission, the Moab to Monument Valley Film Commission will be heading um, to the Red Cliffs Foundation through the end of 2024. It's a 17-month contract. Okay, they keep going back and forth on that. Yeah, the Film Commission has moved around, I think, quite a bit, actually, in the last couple of years. It's been completely funded by Grand County for the last 18 months. Before that, it was primarily funded by Moab City. Um, way back when, it was actually founded at White's Ranch, which is the current location of Red Cliffs Lodge, which has been part of the argument for kind of returning it, if only kind of symbolically, to that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of hope right now that moving it to the foundation could provide the uh, Film Commission a lot more financial support than it uh, currently is able to receive um, through transient room tax revenues from the county Mm -hmm. yeah and this is something that we've been talking about for like weeks it seems like but I think just to put it in context for people this is a big story just because the film commission does when movies come through provide a lot of jobs for people in town Mm -hmm. or like why why are we talking about this yeah absolutely it was couched within the economic development department because it's absolutely seen as an economic stimulus to the area I mean the big headline uh, film that's been in the area recently is the horizon production which has spent millions in the area they're saying led by kevin costner but of course there are plenty of smaller films as well as tons of commercials that do come through the area provide jobs you know provide lodging stays for the hotels and spending on restaurants through per diems Um, so it can absolutely be an economic stimulus here Mm -hmm. and i know there was some controversy with moving the film commission to red cliffs just because of a conflict of interest of like there is the lodge was any of that addressed in in what happened yeah absolutely i think that's absolutely been the biggest concern um the only commissioner actually to vote against approval of the contract trisha dean uh cited those reasons you know she said she has opposed the move from the beginning and her vote tuesday was kind of symbolic of that but specifically she said the uh, film stakeholders locally who she's spoken with have been concerned that redcliffe's lodge could pick up a lot more film business just by having this position at an associated foundation so to be clear the film commissioner biga metzner will be employed by the redcliffs foundation not the redcliffs lodge the two are you know distinct legal entities but they absolutely have a relationship and the foundation is going to be arts focused and is i think planned to be at least partially funded by a resort tax that'll be charged a resort fee charged on stays at the lodge so they're they're related for sure um, but other commissioners ultimately supported the contract because they said there were sufficient guardrails to ensure a degree of kind of oversight from county officials since it'll still be receiving, you know, a good chunk of, of county money. So, for example, Commissioner Bill Winfield will be on the board overseeing the foundation. It's also mandated in the contract that Metzner has to provide annual reports uh, to the county and I think semi-annual presentations to a group of local film stakeholders outlining what she's been doing. Okay. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to mention about that? You know, I also spoke with Brian Hunnings, uh, general manager of Red Cliffs Lodge. Uh, I should say both he and Metzner said they're very excited about the development, super excited to get on the ground running with it. Uh, and Hunnings said that he didn't think the lodge was going to pick up little, you know, if any revenue um, from the move Uh of Biga to the foundation. He said that because of the lodge's size and its location out on Highway 128 River Road, uh, it ended up pricing out actually most um, film projects from staying at the lodge. So he didn't see it as an issue. And he said he was very excited to continually uh, maintain transparency with the move. Okay. What else do you want to talk about today? 
Um, I think a few more interesting, if heated discussions at the Grand County Commission meeting on Tuesday. One was about a pair of billboards that the county leases on the north side and the south side of town, which led to uh, what I thought was kind of a surprisingly engaged debate about the broader ways Moab uh, relates to tourists. Okay. Um, what's what's the controversy? What happened? The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the commission was actually asked to vote on a choice between two verbiage options for these billboards since they're getting redesigned. Uh, the first option was primarily a welcome message. It said, welcome to Moab in big font with please slow down in town a little smaller beneath it. The other one did not have the welcome message, but had big text saying, please keep your speed down with smaller text saying while driving through town. Uh, the commission actually eventually opted for a third option that they came up with. It uh, looked like a compromise. They voted 6-1 to approve verbiage that read, quote, please keep your speed down while enjoying our town. Uh, Commissioner Bill Winfield was the vote in opposition there. And that followed um, pretty hefty debate about should Moab be welcoming tourists right here, right now in this specific billboard spot? Should we be trying to quell noise pollution? Several commissioners say, you know, that's been a growing concern, not only for residents, but for visitors and said that this was actually a really good form of advertising to help uh, maintain positive visitor experience. So that was a really interesting debate to witness. Okay. When do the new billboards go up? I don't know. Hopefully soon. I know um, that folks at the Economic Development Department said that this has been in limbo for quite a long time. But with this decision being made, I would hope in the next couple of weeks, maybe months. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Look out for that. What else do you want to tell us about today? Yeah. Third county uh, story. Promise this will be the last one I talk about today. <laughs> there was a discussion item Tuesday evening among commissioners about travel expenses. Uh, there were certainly heated moments in commission chambers. Ultimately, folks did agree to strengthen accountability and reporting measures when commissioners travel for lobbying or county business. Um, this issue first arose about a month ago when three commissioners requested increases to their travel budgets mid-year. Uh, commissioners are all given by default $750 annually, and commissioners Bill Winfield and Mike McCurdy, as well as Commission Chair Jacques Hadler, all requested increases to that, which prompted this discussion on Tuesday evening. Hmm. Did they say why they requested this increase? Yes, um, that hadn't really been specified earlier, but on Tuesday, uh, Commissioner Winfield uh, provided a, a pretty lengthy account of what he'd been working on. I think he said it was primarily uh, travel up to the Utah Association of Counties, which has held, you know, new elected official uh, trainings. And, and Winfield was newly elected. He said there was a lot of travel to the state legislature to get millions of dollars of appropriations for Grand County for things like Utah Raptor State Park and road work. Commissioner uh, Mike McCurdy, you know, agreed and said that for him it was travel to the state legislature, travel to the UAC event. Um, and I think Winfield also said he's been traveling to Monticello and Thompson Springs on his own dime as well to further relationships with other counties and yeah. whatnot. Yeah, and with the cost of flights out of Canyonlands going up, it's probably expensive for them to get to the capital too. Yeah, and there's some things that were revealed Tuesday as well that I personally hadn't known about. For example, the county changed a policy which now enabled folks to get reimbursed at the federal level both ways for a trip that they use with their own vehicle, whereas before the policy had been for only one way, which I didn't know. There was certainly discussion about also raising that that $750 annual travel budget. Some folks said that it seemed low. It had maybe been decreased, actually, during COVID when folks weren't really traveling anyways. It might be worth increasing. Um, and certainly some tense moments in commission chambers uh, when several commissioners said they felt really attacked just for doing their jobs. Um, Specifically, 
uh, Commissioner Mike McCurdy and also Commissioner Mary McGann both said that throughout the course of discussion. Mm -hmm. Because of like this money and the cost of travel. Mm -hmm. And the way um, I guess it was, you know, raised by other commissioners last month that it should be a discussion item for this accountability. Um, So kind of a convoluted discussion there, but it looks like we will at least be emerging from this with more detailed reports of what commissioners do when they, you know, go out lobbying and whatnot. Yeah. Okay. What else do you want to tell us about? Yeah, in a a final story that I will cover this week, uh, written by my editor, Doug McMurdo, um, an undocumented uh, Mexican national who was actually a material witness in a Moab murder trial in 2019 has now been charged with burglary and other counts following a domestic violence incident that allegedly took place June 1st at Rim Village. Hmm, okay. Yeah, um, Jem Flores Solis, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, he allegedly broke into a nightly rental um, at Rim Village, which is the Spanish Valley complex, and allegedly headbutted his wife several times. Um, the woman then sought help uh, from a co-worker. Oh. Was there a reason why this crime story made it into the paper? I mean, I'm sure things like this happen. Maybe yeah, time, but... I mean, I think primarily, yeah, because of his involvement in the October 2018 2018 shooting of Edgar uh, Rojo Najera at the Walnut Lane trailer park. So he's um, this man, I think, testified against Najera. So he's already familiar kind of with the with the court system here. Sophia Fisher, reporter at The Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at MoabTimes.com. Plus, we also have a special announcement from The Times Independent. Hi, this is Zane Taylor, and I'm the publisher of The Times Independent newspaper. Today, on behalf of my family, I am pleased to announce that we are donating the Times Independent to the Salt Lake Tribune, a 501c3 nonprofit business. As a nonprofit, the TI is a community supported organization now. As such, all TI reporting will be free online starting today. In September, the weekly print edition will be delivered free of charge to all residents of the 84532 zip code. The TI will rely on generous support of subscribers, donors, and grants. Anyone who wishes to support the TI as it works to deliver essential reporting to Moab and Southeast Utah can donate at moabtimes.com donate. Our editorial operations will continue to be run out of Moab under the leadership of editor Doug McMurdo and reporter Sophia Fisher. We want to especially thank our readers and advertisers, some who have been with us for decades. If you'd like to learn more about this exciting change, please visit our website, www.moabtimes.com. Do you want to just read the announcement, or do you want to like talk a little bit more specifically about what that means? Well, you know what it what it means is that we will have we will have a, a, a lot more resources involved with our organization, um, as we have been working with the the Trib folks. Uh, we've become impressed with their ability and professionalism. They can bring a wealth of resources to community journalism, and we hope that that, that benefit will be very much a two way street. Um, it also means that uh, the newspaper will be free. We're very excited because the newspaper will be mailed to every postal address in this area. Wow. It, it greatly expands the reach of the newspaper and the value of the advertising that goes along with that. Yeah. So is this like an indefinite partnership that you have with the Tribune? It is. We have completed the donation. 
what does this mean for the newspaper other than just the the way that it's funded? Like, what does it mean to be a nonprofit now? Well, it means that it's it's basically owned by the, the community. Um, and, and I think that's appropriate in this modern age. Yeah. Is the paper still going to be printed at the... At the location, the, the printed the, uh, the the press will uh, go idle as on the beginning of uh, September. Um, the press run is going to be about five times what it is right now, and it'll be printed on the big Comet Press in Ogden, and it'll be delivered by truck, um, same truck that goes to St. George, and we'll pick them up at Cove Fort and get them here every week on the same day that you're used to getting the newspaper. And that's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories from the Moab area. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun is on vacation this week, but she'll be back for the newsreel next Friday. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.